Welcome to Breaking Green Ceilings, the podcast that amplifies the diverse voices of those who are committed to protecting and sustainably managing our natural environment. I'm your host, Sapna Mulki. Let's get started. In this episode, we will be hearing from Sri Veda Chalam, who will be talking about water equity challenges in the United States, an issue you may know I am very passionate about and have dedicated my entire career to. When I reached out to Sri, he was lead of the water program at the Environmental Policy Innovation Center. Since then, he took a new and exciting opportunity at the Environmental Consulting and Technology Incorporation as the director of water equity and climate resilience. Sri has a really interesting story about how he found himself on a path into environmental conservation and eventually water equity from starting off as a construction engineer. So life works in really funny ways and we see elements of this in all of our stories, but it always just is really surprising to me and very humbling at the same time. So over the past several years, Shri's work has addressed national water issues such as affordability, aging water infrastructure, extreme weather impacts, financing, and non-point source pollution. So let's get into it and talk about his work and how he's bringing water equity to America. All right. Well, thank you, Shri, for joining the Breaking Green Ceilings podcast here with us today. We're really excited to have you to talk about all things water equity. So before we begin our conversation about your life story <laughs> and water equity and how that plays in, we typically ask this question on the podcast first, which is what role has nature played in your life? Thank you, Sapna, for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be on this podcast. So it's somewhat complicated for me in terms of the role of nature. And I say that because I grew up in a city that is, I'm not sure where it lands on the list, but it's pretty, pretty much on the top five metros in the world. Largest metro. Yeah. I grew up in New Delhi. Delhi? Wow. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I grew up in New Delhi in India. It's a highly populated city. Yeah. And also very polluted now. And so it's hard to find nature within the confines of the city. But... I did enjoy the city has, I hope they still maintain those. The city had municipal parks within the city, essentially almost block by block. So every few blocks, there will be a green park. There'll be a patch of green right inside that neighborhood. And so it's like a walled park, somewhat artificial. It's not like nature as you would imagine, you know, going on a hike here. Yeah. Nothing close to that, but it's still a patch of greenery. You'll see some lush grass. You will have trees. (laughs) It felt disconnected from the city. In many ways. Yeah. So, okay. So, that was my sort of interaction with nature for a long time as I was growing up. Yeah. And sometimes we use, when we were kids, we would plan, and it's also a pretty hot country. So, most of the <laughs> it's hot, except for, you know, yeah. a few months, like around now, December to January, February, it's a little cold, but much of the year, and especially summers are really hot. So, we would get up really early in the morning at like four o'clock and as a, you know, a bunch of friends. And then we would actually play in the morning, you know, early morning. Oh, wow. Enjoy the park when, you know, hardly anybody was there. And then come back by seven. So, Wow. Four o'clock in the morning. Yeah, that's know, some that's dedication. Dedication. Yeah. For, for some time. It was hard, but I'm impressed that I was able to do that. Yeah. Oh, my. So I guess it was still dark at 4 a.m., right? Just about. Summers, you know, days are a little bit longer. It's not a huge difference like here, you see, you know. Yeah. It's still somewhat close to the equator. So the days and nights, you know, there's some difference. 
So the day yeah. would start at five o'clock. So you would get a little bit of sunlight as you were walking. Okay. And then, you know, we would play like really early in the morning and then come back. Wow. Oh man, Delhi. We went to Delhi a few times when we were growing up and yeah, it was just so huge. And I didn't realize how cold it can get in Delhi. It is. Yeah, it, the winters are a little hard. And especially when you don't have indoor heating. Yes. That. <laughs> so imagine 40 degrees with wind and yeah. essentially in your house and the houses are not super insulated. So there'll be right. you know, winds coming in into your house pretty easily. So. Oh my gosh. Is family still in Delhi and do you still visit? No, we moved towards the end of my schooling. My family moved mm-hmm. to another city called Chennai. My parents live there now. My sister still lives in Delhi. She and her family. Yeah. Right now she lives there. Wow, that's so interesting. I thought all of the pollution was just from industrial and transportation, but there's also the element of the burning of the crops from the fields in the states nearby. Wow. Okay. That's making me want to Google something new today. (laughs) (laughs) But it's a great segue into our conversation here today around water and water equity issues. But we're focusing now here in the US. It's something that I feel very strongly about. And a lot of people don't realize that we have water inequity issues in the US, one of the wealthiest countries in the world. And we have millions of people, almost 2 million people actually in the US who don't have access to clean drinking water and indoor plumbing services. The majority of them are indigenous communities and communities of color. So you lead the water program at Environmental Policy Center. And the issues that you focus on and which we'd love to kind of delve deeply into today are around affordability, aging, lead replacement, and climate change impacts, financing, etc. So tell us, how did you find yourself in the water world? How did that come about? (laughs) Yeah, sure. Just maybe add a clarification. I actually co-lead the program. I have a colleague who also helps me. Apologies to the colleague. <laughs> Just erased them. You are not valuable. I will convey that. I will convey that to them. <laughs> so it's a somewhat of a long and nonlinear story. So I wasn't involved in environmental issues before. And even though I grew up in the midst of all of these debacles that are happening around me, I clearly had no sense of the external world. Most people don't, <laughs> <laughs> including myself. <laughs> so I came to the U.S for graduate school to do a master's in engineering. That was my undergraduate degree was in engineering. So, you know, that seemed pretty natural. And I also worked before that in somewhat of an extractive industry. I worked for one year in a construction company, which I did not like very much. But that sort of propelled me to look at schools here. I came here and I was on track. I was, you know, wrapping up my master's program when I happened to go back home. My dad was turning 60. So, you know, there was a celebration. So I went for the summer break there. And then when I was in graduate school, I started getting involved in a nonprofit group, which is based in the US. It's called Association for India's Development. It's a volunteer-run, student-run group. They have chapters across the country in many Mm. of the big schools. So we had one at, at our school. And I was just starting to get involved. The basic model is there are lots of grassroots communities and activists and and groups that are based in India. And so they Mm -hmm. need financial support. They need some political support. They need organizational strength. And so volunteers here in the U.S. provide that. So a lot of fundraising happens in the U.S. There's a big diaspora here that's, you know, willing to participate. And of course, people with not Indian roots also are motivated by some of these issues. So there is a big support group. 
And so I got involved more and more. I, I was drawn towards environmental projects, especially some of the ones focused on the nexus between extractive industries and democracy. So there were lots of movements around moving people away from their traditional lands. And these are the indigenous people, the Adivasis in many of the Indian states. And they were being moved because their ancestral homes are located on mines that are used to power our industries, power our cars, you know, our computers and cell phones. So that got me interested. And during this break, when I went to India, I happened to meet an activist and I got really impressed by their projects and their way of collaborative decision-making, the way they engaged communities in doing measurements. One of the projects they were doing was outside a aluminum smelting plant, which was, you know, the industry was essentially letting its waste contaminate the local streams and lakes and people were getting affected, but the local government was essentially turning a blind eye to the whole setup. Mm. And so this group was educating the residents by telling them how to collect water samples how to send them to a lab, how to read the results, how to monitor air quality. And and so that really got me thinking more and more into how this is a tool for empowerment. This is is not justice, but this is democracy. This helps you get more engaged. And then with more information, more empowerment, a broader array of voices can then speak up because now you have evidence. Right. At least that's an idealistic way of thinking. It doesn't happen most of the times. So that got me more curious and more excited and more interested in these areas. So I decided that I wanted to learn more and, you know, what better way to do that since I was already at school. So I thought I Mm -hmm. should stay longer. And so I decided to apply. I should stay longer in school. (laughs) 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 So I decided to get my PhD in environmental science and policy with a focus on some of these emerging issues on the nexus between, you know, science and our understanding public participation, economics, like, you know, how people and governments make decisions. So, yeah. and I was looking around, I mean, obviously this was new for me. And also I had to find somebody who would basically trust me that I can manage this. You thought you know what you're doing. Without having any background. <laughs> so that was a tough one. So I ended up finding a professor who was working on wastewater systems, wastewater management, and was looking for someone who had some engineering background, but was mm. willing to, you know, apply that and think a little broader on some policy issues and some community understanding aspects of this. So that became a good way to immerse myself in this topic because I could bring some knowledge that I already had and then there was lots to learn. And then I never left water. Yeah, that is such a heartwarming story and welcome to the human side. (laughs) (laughs) The engineers might be offended by that. (laughs) But there is like a human element to all of that science that we do, right? And I just love that you were able to see it and apply it in your work and also to do that for water issues, which are so fundamental to just human and environmental, I guess, survival Mm. and ability to thrive. So I guess in terms of the water issues that you're working on, you did mention, you know, it's not necessarily justice, it's democracy. So in your role at Environmental Policy Center, you work primarily on water equity issues. So I work in that space as well. And I've realized that a lot of people don't know what it is. So maybe we can ask you as the expert (laughs) to educate us on what water equity means to you. In its simplest form, water equity means that everyone has access to safe, 
reliable and affordable water services. Mm-hmm. And there is a little bit of a tension between all of those because sometimes yeah. what is affordable and reliable need not be safe. What is safe and reliable means that it's way too expensive and it's not affordable. So that phrase is an ideal way of visualizing things and in practical life, it's just possible that we may not achieve that trifecta. Right. It's the idealism again that you're aiming for, but may not be possible. (laughs) Which may not be possible. Yeah. So that's why we try to figure out how can we move. So at the same time, I should mention not being able to achieve the ideal shouldn't be an excuse to not try altogether. So exactly, the goal has to be to get there. But if you're not able to get all the way in, at least half the way, more than half the way in, so you are able to achieve some of the elements and then figure out how best to triage and, and make sure that you know the most vulnerable people, the most communities, the most in need are able to benefit through other, sometimes patchwork of programs, sometimes you know add-on ways, but at least they get the assistance. Yeah. So in the context, for those of us who don't know, what does water inequity look like here in the U.S.? There are many forms of that. You see that in communities that have lead exceedances lead in their drinking water. So we hear about, we obviously know about Flint, but there are other cities. Uh, Newark, New Jersey went through that. Benton Harbor, Michigan is going through that right now. So that looks like inequity. And there's a common thread running through all those three cities. They're majority black. Yeah. So that's one form of that. Water could also be expensive, as in some of the cities in Michigan have just experienced over the last few, you know, last decade or so, at least in a pronounced way, places like Detroit have, you know, extremely high water bills. So other than quality, it could also be then impacting low income residents. And in this country is set up in such a way that low income means a lot of the people are majority black, majority Latino. Right. There are also some white people, but there is a racial sort of cleavage in terms of who holds the wealth and who holds higher incomes. Right. So anytime water bills are high, it's going to impact every low-income person, but it's going to have some disproportionate impact on certain communities. It could be contamination from other sources. Lead is not the only one. You could have nitrate in your drinking water, which happens to be the case in many communities in the Midwest and, you know, Central California, nitrate or arsenic in your drinking water, other industrial contaminants, not being able to treat that. So inequity comes in many ways. Mistrust is another one. So you could have safe water, but if you have a history of not being able to trust the water services, the officials who provide the water, the officials who endorse, who approve the agencies that say, yes, we have tested, this is all good. If you're not able to trust them, then that is a form of inequity because everyone has access to the same water but you're simply not able to get yourself to trust and say, I'll let everything aside, whatever happened in the past, I'm now willing to trust this water service. That also is a version of that. Okay. So there is the water quality aspect of it in terms of contamination from lead or nitrates or arsenic and other harmful or toxic pollutants. There's water being too expensive for low-income communities, and you gave Detroit as an example. And then the last example you mentioned is mistrust, and that often happens amongst communities of color. And is the mistrust towards policymakers, or is it the utilities that provide these water services? Where is most of that mistrust? Or is it just like government as a whole? 
It could be a mix. It could be a mix of government. I mean, to people like you and me and people who work in the sector who understand the different players, it might look like these are all different entities. Right. Here is a local utility. Here's a state agency. Here's somebody else. But for an ordinary resident, it all looks the same. Right. Everybody who's providing water, everybody who's providing any kind of service, public service, is one group. And I suspect it'll be the same if you ask me about housing or transportation or food or any other issue where I I don't follow the details, yeah. it's, it's possible I'd say the same. And so I don't blame them. Yeah. So from that perspective, anybody who's interacting with them, who's assuring them at any point that something is safe, who's in charge of making some of these decisions, they're all at fault in some way or another. Yeah. Even though I'm in this space, sometimes I forget some of the kind of like fundamental details of like water equity. And so I was just kind of jogging my memory around this and reading more about it. And I think in one of the reports that your organization has put out, one of the examples that they also gave of water inequities is that communities of color are more likely to experience water sewer overflows, right? So that's just basically the manholes backing up with sewage during especially flooding events or heavy rain events. So why is it that we're seeing most of these inequities in communities of color? What's kind of putting that in hold in place? Basically, I mean, a lot of it stems from America's original sin, which is the idea of slavery, the class distinction, the race distinction. That meant that some people do not get the benefit of equal citizenship, equal participation, whether they, that be in government decision-making, you know, the ability to vote and advocate for yourself, be free, own property in places, you know, where other people, other white people were living. So, you know, breadlining of property essentially is the most recent version of that, which continued yeah. until late 40s and 50s, and in some places much beyond that, informally, if not, you know, formally. So, so those are ways where communities could exclude certain people and say, you are not going to build in this area, but you can buy houses in a certain other area. And those areas would be your low-lying areas, your, your places that had a propensity to flood, you know, experience these kinds of damages. There's evidence from studies now that show that within cities where you can map the housing boundaries and look at the places, the blocks that were redlined, those places experience much higher temperatures during the summer, you know, so there's heat island effect that's much more pronounced in those areas compared to others because there's a lack of trees. There's, there's disinvestment in those areas. The local governments and, you know, state agencies have not adequately invested enough over time. So it's hard to fix some of those things that have been unleashed many years ago. Yeah. So that certainly is a strong element of how and why we are experiencing and then there are other, obviously, other issues like, you know, our focus on some capitalistic ways of doing things, some version of private industry lobbying, a mix of that. So the lead is a good example of that. A city like Chicago mm-hmm. has the most lead service lines in the country. And that is solely attributed. I mean, other cities also have, but it's the scale is completely different. Chicago right. probably has 400 or 600,000 lead service lines alone in the city. Wow. It is a big city, but New York is bigger than that. It doesn't have the same number. So there is a difference because Chicago in its code had mandated the use of lead service lines for a long time. 
because of pressure from lobbying groups. Right. And that happened until the Federal State Drinking Water Act prohibited use of federal funds for installing lead service lines in the 80s. And so until then it was going on. And now we are going to, you know, take out those lead pipes that were installed 35 years ago, until 35 years ago. Yeah. So those are going to be challenges. And, you know, it's going to take time to fix what we did for many, many decades before that. Yeah. You know, Rome was not built in a day. So the same logic applies here. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> More like it took decades to build these racist systems, essentially. And so it's going to take more years to undo those. So you said this is then, you know, our responsibility to fix it. Who is us or our responsibility? What entities are those? Because I think a lot of people, I mean, who aren't in the water space are just like, all right, you know, my city provides water, but they don't necessarily know like who's responsible for that, right? Does it matter? It matters in some way. The the good thing, or in this, some cases, it is the bad thing about the setup of our government is that there is accountability distributed across different levels. So there are some things that the federal government does. There are some things right. that the state can do. There are some things only the local government can do. Some things are beyond all of these government controls and are in the hands of private homeowners, private companies, or private entities. And so when all of these things work together, it's a great example of, you know, how to get things done. But it's also easy to evade responsibility by saying, this is not up to me. Somebody else has to do this. Mm -hmm. The federal government can say, this is a local issue. This is a state issue. We cannot do this. And they are within their bounds of doing that because that's how we have set up this government. You know, lots of checks and balances can be helpful, but they can also dissuade faster progress. Yeah, They can impede that, that pace. And that's what essentially has happened in many cases is the local governments and state governments don't have enough money. They cannot borrow beyond a certain limit. They have checks on their own budgets. They have to have a balanced budget. So if you have to pay for something, then you have to make sure that it's coming out of something else. And so often those debates turn into cutting police forces or fire departments or you know less salaries for teachers or foregoing health benefits for pensioners. I mean, those are the kinds of choices that we have to make. Federal government doesn't have those same restrictions, but at the same time, people are less concerned. What if this money is always coming from somewhere else? How do we take responsibility? Yeah. So it's really challenging to work within that system and figure out what are the appropriate ways where the federal government has a role, the state has a role, local institutions, local elected leaders and civic bodies have a role. Individual people, nonprofit groups, advocacy groups, they have a role. Private landowners could be homeowners, private entities, local businesses, they have a role. So it's it's sort of hard to figure that out. But I think once... If we are able to do that, once we are able to do that, yeah, it can really result in a sustained way of progress. Yeah. So then in that similar vein, then it makes me think about kind of choose your evil or choose like where you want to start working. I shouldn't say evil. Choose your adventure. Let's yeah, <laughs> choose your adventure. <laughs> oh, let's Dora this out. So my adventure is working with water utilities, wastewater utilities, and kind of educating them and around the direct connection between water equity and the work that they do, right? So at your work at Environmental Policy Center, what adventure have you all chosen? We've chosen to be bold and try all sorts of adventures. So we, okay. <laughs> we, we, work with, 
we try to work with EPA because, as I said, certain things have to be done at the at the federal level. You could also do some things with Congress, mm-hmm. writing new legislation, clarifying some language on existing statutes, things like that. States have a lot of authority, so that's probably where we spend a lot of effort working with state officials. Yeah. Because a lot of the powers that are not directly given to the federal government automatically are transferred to the state. And yeah. so states have even things that are done by federal government are set up in such a way, for instance, the federal funding, the infrastructure funding that just came through from Congress goes to the EPA and then from EPA to states. And once it leaves that stage, then states get to decide whether to take it, not to take it. If they take it, where to invest. What are the rules that govern? Who gets prioritized? So, you know, and it's not just with the infrastructure money, it's existing setup of how the stuff is done. So there's a lot of authority at the state level and some of them get transferred to the the local utilities. So they might assign something and then utilities have a lot of jurisdiction, a lot of decision-making on local issues of, you know, some of them include siting of facilities, setting of rates, the way of doing things within the, you know, service area that they have. So I think trying to work at all levels is just hedging our bets a little bit because sometimes, you know, things can stall at one, any one of these levels. And so it's just good to try out, spread our eggs. Yeah, and see which one doesn't crack. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so since you're talking about funding, there's this huge infrastructure bill funding that was passed back in November and a good chunk of it is now going towards water infrastructure, which is, gosh, way overdue. A lot of our infrastructure is aging and we need to get it replaced, repaired. And it's some of our, well, I don't know what the percentage of our infrastructure is, like almost 100 years old. Majority are like 50 to 100 years old. So how much money does water get? And how do we distribute that funding in an equitable manner? So in the new infrastructure bill, water did receive a significant boost compared to previous years, mm-hmm. you know, historical, historic investments. We did, I think my understanding is we got $43 billion over five years for the state revolving fund and then some additional money for lead service line replacement and others for Western water and drought preparedness, PFAS removal, study, right. et cetera. You know, this is spread over five years. So it's insane amount of money compared to historic trends, but it is not that insane given the overall context. So right. there was other money for transportation. There's lots of money for transportation in the infrastructure bill. Right. It was essentially a transportation bill, transportation and highway funding bill, which then got expanded and it became easier to include things for broadband, water services, and other needed infrastructure. So take your wins where you get them. And you can ruminate about the fact that we didn't get as much money as some of the other sectors or we could have gotten even more, which is all accurate. But we've got to take the wins that we have got and make sure that we get the best of it, which then makes your next argument, your next ask that much more powerful because then you can say, look, we spent all this money. We got great progress. We got halfway there, a fraction of the way there with this money. If we get a sustained amount beyond this, we can make even more progress. So that's certainly how I would see the investment. And even this investment, even if, you know, as we say, it's not enough, it's going to be a lot of money for the states because they're not used to handling this money. 
it's going to be a lot of money at the local level because the scale of projects that they have done, the scale of disbursement that has happened is not something that they have seen. It's going to be a huge task for states to get this money from EPA and then send it to any utility that's going to ask. And there are lots of needy utilities who are going to use this funding. We did a study led by my colleague, Katie Hansen that looked at this drinking water state revolving fund. This is one of the two funds that are used. One is for drinking water and the other one is euphemistically called the clean water state revolving fund. It, it deals with the wastewater issue. The clean water fund is the much bigger fund because the needs are a little bigger. The sewage treatment plants are much more complex. They have to actually treat, separate the waste from the water. It's a more challenging right. operation than taking drinking water from the river, which is largely clean. You know, you still have to go through treatment, but it's right. somewhat of an easier process. So it takes less investment in that field. So we took the smaller of the programs and she led the study analyzing the program and its distribution over the last 10 years. And we found that, so some prioritization of health does happen across the different projects, but in general, only 7% of the water systems have received this funding in the last 10 years. Mm. And the water systems are skewed in their distribution. There are lots of small systems and there are few large systems. So if you look at population, that number improves a little bit. So it's about 30% of the population has benefited from investments in this program in the last 10 years. Of course, some utilities are not going to ask money because they don't need it. Everything is going fine. But there's a middle chunk that needs the money, but simply cannot go through the process. It's too complex. They need support. They don't have the capacity to handle this on their own. And so most likely they're going to let go of this option and either delay, defer their investments, or look at other easier to obtain ways of funding, but some that are slightly expensive, like bank loans and things like that on the external market. So for those folks who don't know the makeup of what we call the water industry, could you provide them with the breakdown of like how many large, mid-sized, small systems they are, and what populations are served by each kind of size of the utilities? Right. So in the entire U.S., there are about 48,000 what are called community water systems. These are designations by EPA. And these are systems that serve the same people year round. So most of the, you know, all of the houses are, you know, so if you're a residential system, you would fit into that. But then there are some other tricky ones like, you know, what about a rest stop? What about a campground? What about a school? Right. And so some of those are not included in this. For instance, a, a rest stop and a campground wouldn't be included. Schools very often are included in this because they serve the same people for much of the year, if not mm. the entire year. It's like six months or something is the definition, I think. So schools would qualify, but like churches and other places probably wouldn't. Right. So there are about 48,000 systems, which is a huge number. Half of them serve less than 500 people. 500 people. Yeah. <laughs> Really small system, really, really small system. Yeah, super small. And 90% of them serve like 10,000 people or less. So really a small fraction of them serve mid-sized towns and cities and large cities ranging from, you know, a city like New York, Houston, those kinds of big cities to mid-sized towns like Youngstown or Springfield, Illinois or somebody like that, which is like right. 60, 70 to 100,000 people. And then it goes smaller and smaller. So in terms of the numbers, the sheer, the median, the bulk of that is actually much, much smaller systems. Right. The bigger systems are much more robust. They are resilient in terms of the service area that they provide service to. So any kind of shocks are easy to weather. So imagine the economy of 
New York City, not the whole New York City, but like one industry, you know, decided to close shop. It had 500 people that were operating, that were working there, and so who lived nearby. They used water services because, you know, it was one of the raw materials, you know, could be a semiconductor plant, could be, you know, a manufacturing facility. It would have a small impact, but not anything significant. But that same industry, if it was in a town of 5,000 people, it will have a significant impact because it will disrupt the people who are working there. It'll change the dynamics of how much water was being consumed in that community. Right. So those are the kinds of challenges that small towns would experience. And this could be economic shock, could be climate-related weather shocks, could be a system shock, for instance. The system needs to upgrade a certain component in its wastewater treatment facility because EPA or the state agency asks that, you know, you need to do that to comply with regulations. And so that's going to change the entire complexion of how they're going to, you know, process the rates and how they're going to do this, you know, in the long term. Right. And so going back then to conversation around the federal funding from the infrastructure bill, your organization is trying to work with the smaller systems to kind of give them the capacity or work with, collaborate with them rather to be able to apply for this funding because for them, they're more resource restricted, but they're also the ones who are in most need of these funds. Right. Essentially. Yeah, yeah. that's our plan. And I was just going to follow up with like, for me, that's what equity looks like because they're the ones who don't necessarily in a normal situation, don't have access to the same type of resources as a bigger utility would. Right. I'll just maybe add a small clarification that even with larger systems, large utilities, you still, you know, a city like Philadelphia, Baltimore, any other city in other parts of the country, they will have a distribution within their service area. So there will be people who are wealthy, middle income, and really low income folks. Right. Sometimes concentrated, sometimes spread out. And so any investment that goes to, say, Baltimore or Philadelphia or Houston is ultimately going to benefit low-income people in the city because it allows the city to obtain loans that are much cheaper, you know, their interest rates are much lower. And so the cost of servicing that debt is going to be lower. And so they can limit their rate increases across the board, but especially for low-income folks. So it it does benefit the large systems too in many ways. And those benefits get transferred but you are right in terms of just organizational strength, organizational capacity. My larger systems are much better equipped to do this. The cities like Philadelphia and Houston, Dallas and Baltimore have people yeah. who are well-trained with this process. They have people who know how to submit grants and you know they can provide. They have people who do communications, you know, just for instance. They can engage with the state agencies and the states would also be willing to entertain these officials because they know that they are a long-term client of theirs. And so they keep receiving these loans and paying them back on time. So there is a credit history with them as compared to some of the smaller towns who may have never obtained any of these loan programs before or have no history or might have poor finances to begin with. They have no audits being done by the city council. So they are not able to even provide a semblance of a credit check, essentially. That yes, we have you know we have borrowed money before, right. we have paid them back on time. So we are a credit-worthy customer. We should be able to get this loan on a grant, as the case may be. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, it's really funny when I first got into the water industry to just learn about, like, you know, this credit worthiness is also something that exists within water utilities. And I felt bad for those. Like, again, it feels like such an evil system because, like, if you're, like, stuck in poverty, even as a utility, it's hard to get out of it. So, like, 
your credit's going to suck. So like, how are you still going to qualify for funding if everyone like is giving you a poor credit score, right? So like, or rating rather. Right. And the way to get a loan is to get a loan and then pay that loan. <laughs> exactly. Isn't that yeah. the system? So yeah. <laughs> you have to keep paying some sort of loans to then show that you have done the job well yeah. last time and so you will do it again this time. Yeah, but like also it's just like a double-edged sword because sometimes even though you need the funding and you need the loan rather, being able to have like the resources to like pay it back because water infrastructure costs like tons of money, right? It's not like you're getting twenty, thirty thousand dollars or something like that. Just to, like that could be just to replace quarter of a pipeline <laughs> or actually it would cost more than that. Anyway, so just going back then to what you're doing at the Environmental Innovation Center and earlier on, I said policy center, apologies for that. So like one area that you're working on is the financing side. You all have also done work around lead service lines and then the mistrust side of things. The mistrust, I think, work that you all have done, like customer mistrust or water quality information. Tell us a little bit more about that. What have you found? Mm-hmm. So if I wanted to give a background for listeners, there the study that came out of researchers at Penn State, Asher Rasinger and Anisha Patel, they did a study that looked at the level of trust people had over the many years, pre-Flint and post-Flint using national survey. And they essentially found out that trust has been declining over many years, but then, you know, after Flint, it significantly dipped across the board. And so this was not just in Flint, this was national. So right. an incident like Flint had national reverberations, but they'd only accelerated a trend that was being observed before. So people seem to not trust. People seem to not drink tap water. So a significant portion, 60 million people in the country do not drink tap water. They just simply never open the tap for drinking purposes. They might use it for cooking dishes, maybe, or doing laundry and some of the other things, but not putting it into their body. Right. And that's a significant problem for an industry that solely relies on trust, that relies on customers being able to trust what comes out of the tap. It's not like a water utility official is at your doorstep and sends and brings a package or it has a label that says this product has been tested. It's not like a package that comes with every drop is tested. You just assume that it is, right? And they send you a report at the end of the year saying all of that is true, but it's just that once a year. There's no everyday reminder. You know, that's sort of the backdrop that we are losing customers by the dozens every minute. And so our goal is to bring them back. In many cases, these are unjustified fears of mistrust. There is no reason to do that. There is differences between in the same city, there might be differences across communities, across neighborhoods. And there is a racial component. There is a gender component to this. Women are less trusting of water utilities and water in general. Black and brown people are generally less trusting. So so there is that component. There is also an age component. So our goal is to understand where this is happening. In some cases, it is justified. An example like Flint, in, in cities where there have been crises, either related to water or any other public service, mm-hmm. there might be a justification for that. But in a majority of the cases, there is no clear reason why that is happening. And so trying to understand that and improve by providing clear communication between the utility, the local government, and the customer is essential to, if not bringing those people back, at least making sure you arrest that decline. You hold the people that are actually trusting your water right now because pretty soon that number could increase if you don't do anything. So not doing anything is not really an option here. 
you are swimming against the tide. Yeah. But there are also systems, I can't remember, it was a report that came out from, I think, NRDC where they, I think it was NRDC, and I'll include this in the notes as well, that they did find there were a significant number of systems that had failed even EPA standards for water quality, right? So it's not like all utilities or all water systems are doing a a plus job or an A job on no, water. No, it's not that. But again, it's certainly not black and white. But I would say if you're giving me two ends of the spectrum that all utilities are doing a great job, all of them are doing a bad job. And if you have to put me somewhere on the spectrum, I would lie closer to the spot where utilities are doing a good job. Yeah, I agree. Certainly not at the end of the spectrum, but somewhere closer to that. So the goal is to effectively communicate that. And in cases where it's not happening, fix those things and then communicate how you've changed, you know, what are the changes that have happened in the last few years and why they should now trust you. So it's not easy. Yeah. I mean, this is a longer conversation and for some other time, I guess, but like just how bottled water companies just do a better job of branding their water. The water that comes from our water utilities, majority of them are actually like good quality. I mean, like it passes and sometimes above those standards that are required by the EPA. I can't remember exactly, but I saw this meme that said that water bottle companies are only selling you the bottles because the water has already been treated by some system already, correct? Right. They are in the bottling industry, not in the water yeah, industry. Exactly. And all they have to do is like turn on a faucet of the water that's already treated by a water system facility that's not owned by, for example, Coca-Cola or Nestle. Right. There, there is a legitimate role for bottled water. Sometimes you need that convenience. You want that water. It's helpful in case of disasters. It's helpful when your water supply gets affected. We've seen bottled water being used now in lead crisis and people who are not trusting the water. Yeah. So there are certain uses for bottled water for sure. But making that the predominant way of consumption is problematic because there's a huge difference in the pricing of bottled water per unit volume, unit gallon of water compared to tap water, which is pennies for like, I mean, less than a penny for, for yeah, a gallon. For like a, it's like right. thousands of gallons could be, you know, $4. So it's certainly cost effective from that perspective and with very little to no marketing. When have you seen your local utility actually come out on the airways, you know, print out ads in the newspaper? They hardly ever do that. They should yeah. be doing that. They hardly ever do that. So all of this is publicity that's just word of mouth and by reliability and trust that has been built over. So that's why it's a precious commodity. That's why they need to keep it and maintain it because it could be lost pretty easily. Yeah, totally. Well, we can continue having these conversations around water for decades, I think. <laughs> but we do have to put a pause on this for now and... Maybe we can come back a few months later and see how things are going post-dissemination of those funds from the infrastructure bill and see kind of like what you found from that experience. But for now, we're going to transition into our lightning round here. It's a series of four questions and basically just answer the first thing that comes to your mind and we'll take it from there. So are you ready? Yeah. All right, cool. So what have you read, heard, or watched? that has influenced you the most? This one is actually really hard for me because I read a lot of things. Yeah. I'm drawn to bits and pieces of information 
around me. I started reading the newspaper like end to end when I was like in elementary school, like late elementary school, substandard or something. <laughs> and my friends would only read the sports pages. So <laughs> I have been interested in just politics and, you know, following around me. So I would be really struggling to say the one thing that has influenced me. It's one thing that I've read because I do read a lot. And so every little interaction that I have with someone is a learning opportunity for me. Yeah. I guess I can modify that question and ask you, what have you like read recently or heard recently that gave you like an aha moment? A book, a tweet? <laughs> a book. It's really hard for me with two little kids managing life right now. So. Audiobooks. I wish, I wish. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to pass on this one, I think. Yeah, okay. Let's go you to the read next a lot. One. That's it. Okay. <laughs> Let's go to the next one. <laughs> What's a personal habit that has helped you significantly in your work? Celebrating small victories. That's really been helpful. There are lots of things that happen. Many things don't go your way. But just making yeah. sure the things that do happen that have even small improvement in your life that day. An email that says thank you for something that you did is a small victory. Yeah. It's the small things that matter. Small happinesses. Mm-hmm. What's the best piece of advice you've received? Simplify the narrative, like simplify, break it down. Even if you're talking to people who are most accomplished in their fields or who are experts in your own field, it never hurts to simplify and and make sure that, you know, everyone can understand it because that allows you to clarify your own thoughts. That seems powerful. Yeah. It's easier said than done, simplifying, Mm -hmm. because it requires you to think in a different way. So. Can I actually go back to the first question? I did read something this week, which I suddenly realized. I'm like, I actually want to mention that. So I read a post on LinkedIn that said that instead of doing PowerPoints, this person started writing things. So instead of making presentations and meetings, he would just submit two-page written documents, Hmm. which seems kind of strange. Like, why would you do that, right? Yeah. PowerPoints are meant to be easily digested and summarize the high points. But I think if you dig deeper, you realize that when you make PowerPoints, you're focusing a lot more on aesthetics. How does it look like? Oh, this figure should go right there. There should only be three bullets and not five. And it's too crowded now. And then also you're focused on the top lines, the bullets. What does it say? And not on the details. But a written form engages you, forces you to think more deeper. How does it actually play out? What does it mean? How are the dots connected? Then the other thing, the bullets are not connected many times. They're just discrete points, right? Yeah. You know, here are five ways that this project could go, for instance. But when you're writing, you would never do that. You would never say, here are five different ways and yada, yada, yada. You would say, this is the first thing. This helps us go to the next step. And this is connected to this third step. This is the tree of life. And so I haven't obviously implemented that. It, It was just this week and I'm struggling to see how others would see it on my team. But... I'm curious to try out, like really curious. Yeah. It's interesting that you would bring that up because I had a very similar situation with my work where I was presenting some data. It was qualities of data, basically. And there was a, I guess, a suggestion of maybe you can write a memo (laughs) on the data analysis. And I was like, uh, aren't we like going reverse here? Because it's easier again to digest information with the PowerPoints. And I'm like, do people have time to read stuff anymore? I don't know. So I was like, hmm, I'm kind of on the fence with that one. Maybe it's a combination. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. 
Finally, what is your superpower? It's kind of a hard one. I think my most recent superpower, especially after having kids, is not getting sick. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Especially with all the germs that they bring home. Yes. So that's been my superpower. But, you know, other than that, I have nothing else, I think. Just making sure that I can perform at a reasonable level. I try to maintain a pretty steady pace of work rather than do several days with no sleep at all, things like that, Yeah, which can screw up. So, Yes, that is called discipline. (laughs) (laughs) And it is a superpower because many of us don't have discipline or I can speak for myself. So as some of us may want to learn more about your work, how can we follow you on your journey? Write to me. I like to talk to people. So I'm active on Twitter. My handle is Dr. Vidachalam. And some fun things, some professional things. I do that. I post often on LinkedIn. So that's another way to engage with me. The best is obviously write me an email, call me up, and then, you know, we will talk. Yeah. And I love doing that because, as I said, every interaction is a way to learn something, way to further your work, learn about others. So I love those interactions. Yeah. All right. Well, since we've come to the end of this conversation for now, is there anything else that you'd like to add that you didn't get a chance to? There are many things we didn't talk, (laughs) as you can tell. (laughs) Yes, yes, a lot more. We sort of had to stop our conversation. So really excited to talk about these issues. And, you know, we could spend hours, as you said, talking about each one of those. So I'm glad we were able to at least cover some of those, if not in depth. But we should come back and talk more about cell learning in Delhi, mistrust in utilities, (laughs) and, you know, how to get funds to communities that haven't received. Yeah, a lot of the conversations that we have on the podcast are just like, it's just a plethora of information and there's just so much nuance and detail and second conversations are always good to have. And I have been having some of those. So we'll definitely re-invite you to the podcast. So thank you again, Sri, for your time and we'll be in touch. Thank you, Sapna. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Hey all, thanks for listening to Breaking Green Ceilings. If you'd like to hear more episodes with change-making environmentalists, head on over to watersavvysolutions.com backslash podcast. You can find me online on Instagram and Twitter. And as always, if you love the show, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and like on iTunes. You can also sign up for my newsletter to find out when new episodes are available. And please do share the podcast with your family, friends, colleagues, and whoever you think will be inspired by the wisdom of our change makers. I always welcome feedback, so please do feel free to reach out to me. My contact information is also on watersavvysolutions.com. Until next time, keep breaking through those green ceilings.